Scrum. Days 2022, Conan the Barbarian at 40. This recording, presented by the Chromecast, is from Saturday, June 11th. Paul Salmon shares comments and stories related to his involvement with the first two Conan movies starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, sorry I'm late. I just found out it's possible to get lost in cross points. No, no, it wasn't speed. Although I saw somebody get popped on the other side, yeah. They're out there, so. <coughs> Paul Salmon. <laughs> Conan, more importantly. Okay. Uh, I was lucky enough um, at the, well, I guess it was fairly early in the start of my film career. I sort of had dual, I had parallel but completely separate careers for about 35 years, and now one of them is still going, which is the writing end. But the first film that I worked on was 1971, a movie called Silent Running, uh, with Bruce Stern, directed by that trouble. No one knew at the time, but the crew knew it was going to be good, but it was one of those movies when it came out, it kind of just got lost, but it since found its audience. Anyway, I was one of the guys that suited up Huey, Dewey, and Louie, if you knew who they were. So that was a cool introduction to showbiz. Um, but by now, I've been in the industry for about 10 years, and I originally went uh, to Madrid, Spain, to cover the filming of this uh, for uh, the Los Angeles Times and for Cinefantastic magazine. But I had already been working at Disney on a movie called The Black Hole, and uh, boy was it. <laughs> I, I know there are fans, there are fans. The design, the design work is, you know, Un unparalleled, but those goofy two robots, I just wanted to shoot myself in the head. Imagine spending four months on a set with them. Um, anyway. uh, so by 1981, uh, Universal was kind of courting me to come join their publicity department, and I was in the midst of things, and I said, well, I'll go to Spain because I'm a huge Conan fan. First story I read was in 1959, which was Red Nails in the Gnome Press edition in a little town, a little navy base called Sangley Point in the Philippines. Uh, pulled it off the children's shelf of the library. I was considered children's literature. Warped my young mind at the age of nine years old. And I've uh, been reading, every, went through all of the Forsetta paperbacks. I went through the Gnome Press. I went through the Barry Windsor Smith phase and you know, and the jump scene, everything. And then here I am on the film. And so it was a huge treat for me. But um, since this is the 40th anniversary, let me show you some, uh, hmm, doesn't agree, okay. There we go. This is the international one sheet. Uh, this got picked up domestically in a few theaters, but this is the poster that they used to advertise mostly in Europe and in Asia. And uh, this is the famous one that everyone's seen from America. And uh, Sandal Bergman down there kneeling at his feet, you know, Arnold striking a heroic pose. And this was consciously modeled after Frazetta. Um, this was uh, in, I know, I was in the publicity department at Universal Theatrical Domestic, and they were, they said, we want to do a Frank Frazetta poster. And 
so this is what they came up with. Um, and then, of course, they cast this lug. Um, and, uh, you know, physically, uh, although I really like Jason Momoa's portrayal, I thought he was closer to the true character of that Howard created. But if you wanted to break Conan to an international audience that didn't know anything about him, uh, really, uh, he was the guy. He, he, was, he was red hot at the time. And everyone thinks that the Terminator made Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is not true. Conan the Barbarian, in two weeks, grossed $100 million worldwide. When it was released, this, you know, was actually released in May last month in 1982. So within two weeks, it made $100 million, and he was an international star. And he was still taking English lessons. It was very funny. Um, that's why he has relatively little dialogue in the film. Um, we'll get to that. This is me way back. Uh, as, as you can see, something has been lost in the years in between. Um, but yeah, that, this is Arnold and I on the set of Conan the Destroyer uh, in the uh, mirror set. And that, that, that film was uh, shot by Jack Cardiff, who was a legendary British cameraman. He shot uh, The African Queen, and then he, then he went on to direct some really interesting movies as well, including one he wouldn't talk about called The Mutations where Donald Pleasance is trying to turn humans into giant uh, Venus flytraps. And if you've ever seen it, it's a real sleazy drive, and, and Jack wouldn't talk about it. I kept, Jack, tell me about the mutations. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> so, anyway, but uh, Arnold, what you can't see here is, I, I guess it's my uh, Irish, but I, I have a streak of insolence in me sometimes. And, Arnold and I had already known each other for about almost three years at this point. And what you can see is my other hand, which has got his loincloth and is giving him a wedgie. <laughs> That's why I'm smiling. And he got so mad, he turns to me and goes, why do you always do this? This is serious. And I said, well, you're the star, can't you handle it? And that was our relationship. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about the very first time I met him soon. Um, so here's one of the things I did, of course, back in the day. This was the double issues in a fantastic of the making of the film. Oh, oh, oh. Thank you, Wendy. There it is, right there in the flesh. I got one. And I, I've got a few. <laughs> Still. Um, but here's the calendar piece that I did for the LA Times. The LA Times used to have a, a special entertainment pull-out section, and I made the front page. I came back and you know wrote my piece for a guy named Irv Litovsky, who was the editor at the LA Times at, the, at, the, at that time. And uh, this is the very first Conan um, pre-publicity thing that came out worldwide. It had my name on it. And uh, there was the, uh, the actual thing itself. And... Uh, Here's something else I did. I did so much work on writing on Conan. I did muscle and fitness magazines. I did, what was it called, strength and health. I did a woman's magazine. I must have written about a dozen different articles on the film and on the one that came after the destroyer because I worked on that as well. But that all led, of course, to this book, um, which uh, a, a very kind gentleman bought last night for the auction and gave some Project Pride some money. Oh, and a shout out, of course, to Project Pride. Thank you so much. I don't know if Arlene's in here, but anyone who sees Arlene, pat her on the back. I mean, she's doing an incredible job. She's tireless. And not to mention Rusty. So is Fred. Oh, of course, Fred. Sorry. If I name you all. <laughs> all right, Rusty, I'll name you, and I'll name Indy over here, Bill Cavalier, and I'll name myself, Paul Sam. No, no, I'll name someone more important. Why we're all here. Bell and Bob. Robert E. Howard, 
this is more, more interesting photos of close-up. Uh, Robert E. Howard. Um, and uh, here's a guy because he's a, he's a native son and he had a lot to do with uh, keeping the uh, franchise going. Oh, it's spread out there too, Malmberg and Jay. Shout out to you guys. Um, yep, I see a hand back in the back. Um, this man, of course, Glenn Lord, uh, he was the real keeper of the flame for a while, although he was in competition with another guy whose name won't be mentioned right now. Uh, but I was friends with Sprague de Camp and his wife, uh, Kathleen, and uh, Catherine, excuse me. And uh, anyway, here's, uh, here's Glenn years later at the Howard House, and, uh, you know, shooting from the gift shop. And uh, of course, we'll just go through real quickly some of the things that started the Conan Care. Yes, this is a Shadows of Zimbabwe. This is uh, one of the Margaret uh, Bondage, uh, excuse me, Margaret Brundage uh, covers stories. <laughs> she did everything in pastels and chalks, and she used her daughters as models. And she said, okay, like, you know, okay, dear, like, you know, okay, you're happy to not drape yourself over the table, but now the sister can wrap you in the jeans. And <laughs> I just imagine what those sessions were like, you know. Um, yeah, it was. I know. It was. A, it was an interesting period, and unfortunately, because her stuff was done on chalk, a lot of it disappeared. Not all of it, but a lot of it disappeared. Conan in uh, in uh, Marvel Comics before he was Conan. This was the prototype Star of the Slayer. Anyone remember that? He just popped up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and uh, style looks familiar, should, same guy that wound up doing the Conan comic books. And of course, all of the spin-offs that came afterwards, uh, comic books, the Lancers there in the corner, something here you don't see too often, which is all the German Conan paperbacks and Conan stuff that came out. And I, oh, I, I was in, when I was in Spain, they had Frazetta uh, Lancer comics uh, that were unauthorized. And what they had done is they had adapted a lot of the Conan stories to comic graphic forms, not Barry Windsor Smith, not Marvel, their own artists. And all the, every other panel, it was like a, a, a severed head or an artery, like gushing over three panels. And it was like, I've got, I still have some of those. And uh, the, the Spanish are unfettered when it comes to sex and violence. But that's an interesting thing. Here's another interesting story. That's George Lucas being pitched, Conan the Barbarian. And if you'll see what he's reading, is flashing swords. And um, the guy who was standing up there was a comics dealer named Ed Summer, who was also a producer. And you can see the, the same age and the same, you know, um, uniform. And Ed was the guy who actually got the, the Conan movie really going. And he got it into the right hands. And eventually, you know, he wound up with some bonus points. And uh, Arnold, despite his claims of being six feet, is only about 5'10". And like many people in Hollywood, including John Wayne, he wears lifts in his shoes. Sorry, Arnold. Um, but that's a standard practice. But even with this, they're out here in Almeria. This is down in the south of Spain, uh, where they shot a lot of the spaghetti westerns. At the end of Conan the Barbarian with the Battle of the Mounds, if you were to go two miles or you can point the cameras in some instances, you could see the old western towns of Sergio Leone shot them. It's the same area, and it's a terrible place. It's all, I mean, I, I love deserts. I, I, I lived near the Mojave for many years, and I used to go hiking out there. But there, it's all swamp. And so you have 110 degrees and mosquitoes as big as your fist. And gnats, clouds of gnats that would carry your hands away. You know, I mean, not a pleasant place. Uh, and then, of course, you're running around naked, or half-naked. <laughs> it's an interesting location. 
Here's a guy that really started it in terms of getting the money. This is the producer, Ed Pressman. Ed Pressman and said, was approached by Ed Summer, who said, we should do the Conan movie. And he said, well, who should we cast as Conan? And the two Ed's said, well, wow, who's this new upcoming guy called Arnold Schwarzenegger? Why don't we get him? So in 1977, Arnold actually signed a contract with Ed Pressman to star in a Conan adaptation. And it was sort of a guarantee, sort of a deal memo type of thing. And uh, so then the hunt started to go on. And first, Oliver Stone, the guy who did, of course, Platoon and, you know, a lot of movies since then. Um, I worked on Platoon, by the way. Um, shot in the Philippines where I grew up. Um, what happened was that Oliver Stone wrote a script, which is online and you can read. And if you read it, about the first 20 pages of Stone's script is the Milius Conan film. Pretty close. It starts with Conan as a young boy, the raid on the Sumerian village, Conan being young Conan being taken into slavery, and then finding the wolf witch in the cave and having sex with her, and she turns into a creature. That's all in the, first, in the film as is. But Oliver Stone's script also had armies of mutants and got into this post-apocalyptic thing. There was one draft where Conan digs up a, an old rusted Browning submachine gun. That's not, on the, that's not on the script, it's online, but I've got it at home. That was on the first draft. So it was completely different. And, and anyway, and Oliver wasn't an established name. Uh, he had done a few films, but they were all B-level films. And of course, John Milius had already done The Wind and the Lion with Sean Connery and done Big Wednesday. And you know, he was an established guy, also an incredible historian, died in the war military fanatic, and just a crazy man. This is, this is him directing down in Almeria. And uh, here's the other guy who was very central. Now, uh, of course, John wrote the script, the final shooting script, and also directed it. But the man who is really responsible for the look of the film is Ron Cobb here. And this is a shot, I, I, I'm also a photographer. I took this in Ron's studio in Santa Monica in 1980, I think. And I'd known the Cobb since Alien. Uh, Ron and Robin uh, loved his wife, and she was Australian. He was kind of part Australian. Way through osmosis. One of the most laid back, most genuinely talented men I've ever met. He could literally draw anything. He could, he could do the most detailed engineering schematic down to, well, you'll see a rough draft of King Conan on his throne that Ron did. It's a pencil drawing. But 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 John, John delighted in this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> all right, that's William Smith's head. You know, and John walked around the set all day uh, carrying that, and his mantra was more blood, more blood, more blood. And back then, they still use them, but not as often, but back then they had these old fire extinguishers filled with Cairo syrup and food coloring, and that's what they used for blood, and John would always be spraying everybody constantly. And the stuff is very sticky, and after it lights for a while, you know, the actors were really kind of bitching behind his back, saying, I just spent three hours in the tub, and the tub plugged up, you know, because of that director. But anyway, I, I later asked me some million stories. I've got a thousand million stories. Of course, he was instrumental in getting James Earl Jones on board as Thulsa Doom. And I said, you know, at one point, being a, you know, a Howard kid, I said, uh, you know, John, um, Thulsa Doom's not really from the Conan canon. And he goes, yeah, I know, he's from that other guy. And I said, yeah, King Cole. And uh, he goes, yeah, but I just like the name Thulsa Doom. <laughs> and so that's why he put him in there. 
And then, of course, uh, also in the casting process, they got Sandal Bergman. And Sandal was what they call a gypsy, a Broadway gypsy. She was a dancer and an actress on Broadway for about 10 years before she did this film. And her breakthrough thing was all that jazz. Uh, she's in the air erotica sequence, if you ever saw the Bob Fosse's autobiographical film. And she's the one that takes her top off. And she's, she goes, I've always been embarrassed by that. Because she, believe it, or lot, believe it or not, a lot of actors don't like nudity. They don't like to be nude. I mean, they're, with all due respect, neurotic and self-possessed enough about their image. And unless they're like absolutely perfect specimens, you get the body double who steps in. And I, I can tell you dozens of films where you're sure that that's so, somebody's butt, and it's not. You know, they, they have the butt wrangler say, you know, okay, butt number three. <laughs> it's true, it's very funny. That's crazy. Um, and here, of course, she is in full regalia. And uh, she also told me that, <laughs> that leather top she had to wear chafed. And so they had to put this special kind of a, I think it was kind of a, a moleskin, and that actually had like a Vaseline on it because she was being rubbed raw by this thing, you know, when she had to wear it. I always felt this very strange moment. I was introduced to her on the set uh, the first day I was on the uh, Orgy Chamber set, and that, that was my first day in Conan, which was a perfect day to be there. They had just started very early in the shoot, I think it was the third day. And uh, they go, this is Sandra Bergman. I go, hey, I'm Paul, I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, oh, yeah, okay. And, and, and I said, I, I put my hand out to shake. And she said, well, I can't, I've got makeup. And I so we did a, a pinky thing, right? I walk away, I come back 20 minutes later, and she's got her hand up like this, and there's blood gushing. I mean, gushing from her hand. And what had happened was they were rehearsing a sword fight for that fight in the orgy chamber. And uh, her sword, although the tollbar she has here has got a, a, a handguard, the sword that she had when she was using it to practice didn't. And the stunt guy's sword went down her blade and split her hand right here, down to about here. And for about half the film, she's got that injury, and you can't see it. They have a little prosthetic put on it, and she had like uh, stitches. And they took her to the hospital, and she was crying, but she didn't make a big dramatic scene out of it. She was a real trooper, a real pro. And she was very much appreciated by the cast and crew. And uh, she came back to work the next day. Oh, jeez. And she, they, they switched the sword a couple of times. If you look real closely, I think there's still a shot or two where she's got the sword in a different hand. But I came back, and I felt bad because I had just touched that hand. We <laughs> the pinky thing. And for some reason, I thought I caused it. <laughs> That's how important I am in my own world. Um, all right, and then of course Jerry Lopez, who was a champion and still is a champion surfer. He was the king of the bonsai pipeline. And Melius was a surfer. Uh, John was an ardent surfer. So am I. Um, I can only body surf now with my boogie board most of the time because my knees are a little wonky. Um, but Jerry and I and John, oh, and Basil Polidorus, the guy who did the score, also a surfer. And my, one of the, my one of the memories I'll have to my grave is the four of us on Spanish surfboards trying to surf this, this like two foot mushy break down in southern Spain. And I'm thinking, oh my God, there's Jerry Lopez, there's Don Gillius, wow, there's Basil, and here's little me. And it was just, again, one of those moments. It was uh, quite a uh, production. So, anyway, so they become the trio, of course, right? 
And so here's some of the different costuming that's... Uh, Milius was really interesting. He went to Ron Cobb and he said, I want something, I want to mix up, I want this to look historically accurate, but I want you to bring in about 15 different cultures from the past. And he gave him art books and showed him, he says, okay, here's what the Turks looked like in the 15th century, here's a Spanish influence, here's a Norwegian influence, and then mix it up. And that's what the design aesthetic was. You can see that here in the scene a bit with uh, William Smith, who I just saw this morning in, in the, on, on TV, on one of those stations that no one watches, where they play the old westerns. Remember Laredo? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Will Smith, and he's like, you know, probably 40 or something like that. And here he is. Uh, if you ever noticed in the film, if you know your film, and he has that scene, he's acting like Jack Palance. And that's because they wanted Jack Palance to play Conan's dad. And uh, Jack Palance, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, didn't play Conan's dad. But Mealy's direction to, to Bill Smith was play it like Jack Palance. So, this you can trust, yeah. you know? Pure, pure balance. And of course, Mako is the Wizard of Mounds. But it had his biggest moment, I guess, in the Sand Pebbles. He had a very significant part in that, if you ever saw it. And uh, two other guys, this is a behind the scenes shot. Here's John Mealy's. Uh, directing and it's Sven Oli Thorsen, who is a Danish, uh, 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 I think he was the world's powerlifting champion at that time. An enormous guy, and Ben Davison, a, a very famous football player, whose previous screen credit was at a, a brief moment in a classic pornographic film called Behind the Green Door. And uh, he's, he's the doorman at the green door. <laughs> he doesn't do anything. He's just standing there in one shot. And I asked him about that. He goes, oh, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, oh, and, and John always said the only thing tougher than Sven Ole Thorson was a grizzly bear. And Sven used to do a stunt where he would, there would be two Piper Cubs. He would get on a runway and wrap chains around the, the tails of each one and hold one in each hand and they would rev their engines and they couldn't take off. This is true, not a stunt. Amazing, he also played El Tigre in, in Gladiator. You know the guy that breaks out with the tigers and he's got that, you know, but Sven was like one of Arnold's uh, workout buddies and always showed up in his movies. And of course, Max von Sydow, who was a wonderful man. Uh, I sat hours endlessly talking Bergman films with him and, and also some of the other films he had done, like Three Days of the Condor, which is a Dino De Laurentiis movie, just like Conan the Barbarian was. And uh, then, of course, here we have Valerie Kinesin as the princess. And a uh, funny story here, um, this is the two of them on location. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> do you see that? You're going to see in a second something coming up. I've been inferring to some of my friends. Uh, this is a still that's never, not really been seen before. Um, but anyway, uh, John was to the right of Genghis Khan, right? I mean, you cannot find a more conservative man than John Billings. And Valerie literally had a card as a member of the Communist Party. <laughs> and they hated each other with a passion. And they would get in these flaming rows He'd go, you empty-headed socialist, and she'd go, you shamanistic old world pig, the world doesn't belong to you anymore, and you know, and she's got a friend accent, and he's, it was, and, but it, it never got too bad. But if you'll notice, she has very little dialogue in the film. Originally, she had more. 
<laughs> okay, this is a picture. Now you 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 wouldn't put this out for a for a promotional still anymore, but <laughs> that's Arnold and Valerie working out. And so, so you know, and uh, it was meant to be a gag photo, and it was funny in 1981. Don't think it's funny today, but now you've seen it. I love I love their both expression. They were both giggling. They, it was set up by some German. Photojournalist, and uh, <laughs> anyway, now you've seen something rare. <laughs> and here's some Ron Cobb stuff. Uh, there's Ron again, and of course, there's a uh, part of the orgy chamber which he designed. He designed the makeup, and uh, that's uh, some of his work from Star Wars, of course. On to the right, he designed the DeLorean for Back to the Future. Alien, of course, he designed the Nostromo. And you know, Ron just was oh, he worked on Sleeping Beauty. The, uh, he worked at Disney as a young man, and he was what they call an in-betweener in animation, uh, the guy who actually does the in-between, and well, I won't get into the technical stuff of it. But Ron was truly a fabulous guy. Um, very humble, uh, very funny, very smart. You could talk about anything. You could talk about photochemical engineering or optics or, you know, spectral waves, or you could go into history or talk about cartooning, anything like that. But one, one thing I want to say, this is my Arnold story. Um, the old one, the makeup there, the camouflage. <clears throat> the first time I met Arnold, first day, as I said, on the set, they're shooting it. And a publicist, a guy named Terry Urban, at the time, they had two publicists, but a guy named Terry Urban brings me to Arnold's trailer, it's lunch. And Arnold's there with Spam and a couple of his other weightlifting buddies. And he's got this stuff on. And I'm staring at him. And, uh, and now, now remember, I've been in Hollywood now for a few years, and so I sort of know how the game is played. Um, but I'm also a little insolent, and I'm, I'm young. And uh, he looks at me, he goes, uh, what's your name? And Terry goes, this is Paul Salmon. He, and Arnold looks at me and he goes, what a catchy name. And I went, wait a minute. And he, and he goes, yeah, it sounds kind of fishy to me. And I'm, I'm staring, and I'm thinking what's going through my mind, okay. One of two things here. Either this man is a complete idiot <laughs> and has never realized that with my name, I've heard this since the moment I was born, and every possible variation, or he's pulling one of these little power things on me. And so I, I said, I'll, I'll, I'm going to risk something. So there's a pause, and I leaned in, and I said, that's very funny, coming from someone who looks like a demented Austrian raccoon. <laughs> this inhalation of breath in the trailer. They went, oh, this man just, this is the star. There's nobody, you know? And Arnold was, even then he was smoking Monte Cristo's. He, he puts it out in the ashtray. He looks at me and he frowns and he goes, you're all right, come sit here. <laughs> we worked on five pictures together. It was the same relation. It was always banter back and forth. We, I would be having lunch, and he'd walk by, and, I had, and maybe I'd have mashed potatoes on my plate. He'd go, look at all that starch. Do you want to get fat? And I'd say, shut up, Rod. Call immigration on <laughs> So, and he, he got along. He had a good sense of humor. But I love that. That was, I can't believe I got away with that. <laughs> anyway, here's some Ron Cobb stuff, the thing in the crypt. How many people saw the Northman? Do you remember the thing in the crypt sequence? That's right out of Conan the Barbarian. The director has come right out and said, he said, Conan the Barbarian was my visual influence for the Northman. And there is a thing in the crypt scene, which is done a lot better in the Northman. 
because it actually the you know the mummified remains of the ancient king come to life in the battles, you know, scar scar. Interesting. So anyway, um, Ron did all kinds of stuff that never showed up in the film. This was kind of like going to be it's a little hazy, but it was going to be a Sumerian yurt. You know, this was the version of the yurt. It was a portable yurt. You could put it up on wheels and then unfold it. And just since they were supposed to be a nomadic traveling people, you could do that. Uh, also, Ron came up with the wheel of pain, which was the wheel grinding thing. That was supposed to be for grain. And uh, I asked him, I said, what, 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 what is this? What does this have to do with the story? And he goes, well, you know, if you read the Conan stories, which he did, by the way, um, after everyone made it. He wasn't a fan to begin with. Um, he, he said there's no, nothing in here that shows how he became lithe or athletic or anything. We've got Arnold, who's like one of the most developed men in the world, and so I figured this was probably a shorthand way of saying that this guy had spent like 10 or 12 years pushing this wheel. And if you remember the way the film was shot, it's a bunch of kids, and then it's a few people, and then it's just him pushing the thing around. And the, thing, the funny thing is, it was counterbalanced, and if you went like this, it would go. <laughs> so when you see when you see Arnold straining, that's real acting. <laughs> Ron Cobb, this is his cameo in the film where he plays the drug dealer, which was practice all up because uh, Ron was very and and that's so my frankly uh, he was very liberal and uh, this was the Black Lotus stuff, you know, and he, he was it's the good stuff, you know. Um, but Ron, uh, I told you earlier, he could do things like, this is his early sketch of King Conan, you know, on the throne. And um, this was uh, something that they were going to do. They originally had a series of at least four Conan films planned. Three for sure, four maybe. Uh, the third one turned into King Cull, and there's a long story behind that. And uh, Cull the Conqueror, and uh, not a very good film. Um, but they were originally going to all open and close with this prologue and, and, and afterward, where he said, uh, it was a voiceover of Conan, and it was supposed to be, you know, oh, you know, before the ocean strike Atlantis, but that went to Mako in the finished film, and the reason why it didn't show up until the end in the first film was because it was one of the last things they shot, and they didn't have time, they were really pressed for time. And also, they tried to have Arnold do the voiceover, and it just didn't work. But it was supposed to open up the second movie, too, but the director, Richard Fleischer, on Conan the Destroyer said, no, 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 this is my movie, this isn't John Mealis's movie, and we're not going to do it that way, so that's why that happened. All right, here's Ron Cobb, uh, again, uh, with uh, Conan's father out there with uh, the sword, you know, the sword, the master sword. Ron's sketch for the master sword, and uh, the on, on, <clears throat> on the blade, it's supposed to say, suffer no guilt, ye who wield this in the name of Krom. So it's okay to cut it off. It's all for Krom's sake. And here are the real deals. Uh, these were made by a master swordsman named Tim Hookhausen, uh, who was very big in Hollywood at the time, and also in like um, collector's worlds and, and uh, military recreation shows. And they were real. And the Atlantean sword, which is on the right, uh, I think it weighed about 12 pounds, something like that, pretty heavy. And you would pick these things up, and, and Arnold really had to practice, and they practiced for months, they being Jerry Lopez, Sandra Bergman, and Arnold by this guy, Kiyoshi Yamazaki. And Yamazaki was a very famous sword, uh, Zen swordmaster who was based in Orange County back in the day, and he also has a dojo, he's still alive. 
But they, they practiced three days a week, eight hours a day on each one of those things for four months before they did the film. And they did every kind of sword imaginable so that it would be convincing. And uh, here's the orgy chamber set. And I walked into a Frazetta painting. I mean, I was just, I mean, this was consciously one of their moments of Frazetta homage. And uh, if you'll remember the half-naked slave girl chained to the pillar with a leopard at her feet, you know what? That's like almost like an iconic uh, Frazetta image. And here is Arnold again with his uh, <laughs> raccoon dementia. And uh, I, I said I'd tell you about Jack Palance. Here's Jack Palance coming to the production office very early when it was still based in L.A. We were only in L.A. for about a month before they went to Spain. And that's William Stout, who is the other designer on the film. And Bill Stout and I have known each other literally since 1970. We're one month apart in age. I'm one month older than he is. And we're both from the, we're both from the same part of the Northeast. We lived in the same city, uh, Altadena in California, for about 15 years until I moved a few years ago. And uh, uh, Bill and I are, are great friends. And he is a great artist. Uh, has anyone seen his natural history work, his dinosaur stuff? Yeah, just amazing. If you ever go to the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History, these fantastic murals are up on the walls, and he did those, you know, just single-handedly. It's just unbelievable. Bill's a great guy. Jack Palance comes in to read for Conan's dad, and the very first thing, they give him sides. You know what sides are? The sides are the dialogue that just the actor gets. They don't get the whole script. And they go, okay, here, here's your lines for Conan's dad. And Jack Palance goes, no, 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 I'm not here. What, what? I'm not here for Conan's dad. Because in real life, he was just like he was on the screen. And they go, why? Well, why are you here? He says, I have Conan. <laughs> and they said, no, I'm sorry, you're not Conan. We've already got a Conan. And there was a disagreement. So anyway, so Jack Palance, that's, that's why he didn't show up in the movie. Because he wouldn't play Conan's dad. But anyway, there they are playing around with some prop stuff. Here was the uh, thing that was on the art department. Door in uh, Spain, and uh, you know, and uh, here Luigi uh, Basil, uh, Spanish uh, Italian, Spanish slash Italian designer. Uh, he did in Alien the hypersleep chamber, the lotus things that open up when you first see them. That's that's Pierre Luigi, and he'd been around for years. He he jobbed all kinds of films, but here's uh, Ron and uh, Bill back in the day, back when we all had hair. <laughs> And uh, this is them in L.A., but this is them in Spain, where they had a tiny little corner of an office. And Melius was right there. It was Melius's office in his art department right in front of him. And John used to have a Bowie knife. And they, Ron uh, got a, a, an old door and painted a chained slave, like a guy who had been like in a dungeon. And it was propped up against the door to the art department. And Melius would get bored, and he'd throw the Bowie knife across the room and stick it into the, 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 the painting, the thing that Ron had done. And many times it went right through the door and into the opposite wall, the corridor. So there was a sign by the elevator that said, please beware of knives. <laughs> the production crew knew what that was. But, you know, he, John was in this, John was John. Uh, and here's some of Bill Stout's art that you don't normally see. This is the witch's hut that was originally going to be done before they decided to build it into the side of the natural stone formation. Um, this is the sequence that they started to film and then they never completed it because of budget um, and time, actually, in Spain. You know how Conan is, this master gets drunk when he's a slave and he says, now you're free. 
And it's kind of like arbitrary. Well, in the original script, Conan is in this cage. This is where he is as a slave. And there's an earthquake. And it actually rips the bars apart. And that's how he gets his freedom. And I have a still at home. I didn't bring it. But I have a production shot of them when they shot a close-up of this set. But they never got around to doing the practical effects of the earthquake and the ripping of the bars and stuff like that. They just ran out of time. So John overnight came up with the idea of the thing. Well, the, well, the guy will get drunk and just feel sorry for him because he's been such a great pit fighter. The pit fighting, by the way, you know what I'm talking about, right? Is based on actual things in Natchez, Louisiana, where they used to dig pits in the back of the pubs, and they would guys would go in there with Bowie knives, and whoever came out was a victor. And Jim Bowie was one of the a famous pit pit fighter. That, this is from American history, from the Southwest. And uh, John knew that, and that's where that whole pit fighting thing came from, from his knowledge of American history. And here's some just action scenes that Bill did. This was for the raid on the Sumerian village, where young Conan you know, becomes a, a slave. And this was the original mountain of power that the set was going to look like, the cave entrance. Then they redesigned it. And uh, this was King Osric's, oh, excuse me, this is a Sumerian village that they originally came up with. Oh, funny story. Um, when uh, uh, they got there, we shot this, this was shot in Segovia in Spain, and they built this whole village, and Segovia annually has a really hard snowfall. And this was in January of 1981, and it never snowed. And so they're getting more and more frantic, because the Sumerians, they thought, were supposed to be far northern people, you know, barbarians that lived in there. So they went to a marble quarry, and they got marble chips. And so everything you see that looks like snow, except for a few little shots where they actually use foam, you know, just like detergent and water, that's all marble chips and quarries all ground up. And, they, that, and, and the grips and the guys who, you know, do the muscle on shows, they did that overnight to the set, to the whole set. So it was like one of those 9-11 moments, you know, help, help, help. It's not snowing. And uh, here's the interior of the witch's hut, originally conceived by Bill Stout. Oh, and here's a great uh, uh, a candid shot. Uh, this is the very first day that Arnold came to the office and John Melius came to the office in L.A. And uh, that's the first time Melius and, and, and John met each other. And, uh, I mean, at least in terms of, while well, they were in prep, they had met before that, of course. Uh, but the guy here on my right, on the right is Buzz Feichens. He's the producer of Conan, along with Raffaella De Laurentiis, who, of course, produced Dune and went on to produce a lot of other films. And uh, Buzz was a cartoonist for UPA and worked on Gerald McMoyne Boyne and Mr. Magoo shows. Any of you film people out there, well, they, was, they were both very, very popular cartoon uh, animated uh, heroes, quote unquote, back in the day. And uh, here's the Tree of Woe, uh, which of course is from which I'll be born, I think. And uh, the thing uh, that you can't see is that Arnold is sitting on a bicycle seat. <laughs> no, that's not Arnold. Shame on you. That's the bicycle seat. <laughs> but yeah, they had to keep rearranging his loincloth because the, the wind would blow and it'd flap up and you'd see this. And they'd go, cut. <laughs> you know, run it in, you know. <laughs> And uh, not everyone liked the film when it first came out, including Mad Magazine. <laughs> That's the know, And that was their cover story for it. And, but of course, Conan goes, oh, baloney, good. Yeah, 
<laughs> and uh, here am I on the set of the Origin Chamber. And that's, that was one of my favorite shots, too. The sword was real, by the way. And this guy was an extra. And I was always, extras get overly enthusiastic sometimes. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, yes. Yes, that's that's nice. Yeah, you you're playing a cannibal. Yes, that's nice. Can we get the shot over with, please? No, but that was a cool moment. And uh, anyway, so my apologies for being late. As I said earlier, it is possible to get lost in cross planes. And uh, we end up once again with the iconic imagery of Conan. There you go. Okay. And you know, let me, uh, we got 15 minutes now for Q&A, which is my favorite. I'd rather do an hour of Q&A. Before we get started, one, one quick thing. Um, I, want you, I want you to know that whatever Howardian influences came into Conan the Barbarian, and there was a lot of carping about it from the purists when it came out. And I'm actually a purist. I'm a secret purist. But I was so thrilled that there was finally any kind of Conan you know, big budget production. This was a large international co-production that I, I I just forgave a lot of what I saw as the typical, you know, Hollywood studio um, compromises. And uh, there were three of us on the film that were hardcore Howardians, Ron Cobb, Bill Stout, and myself. And we were the only three. I don't think Arnold read a single story um, I know Milius did, and he said, yeah, he said he liked Howard. He liked, interestingly enough, he liked his Oriental stories more. He told me that he liked, uh, he, he went on a big Howard bench. He had big piles of weird tales on his desk, and he was reading them out from the paperbacks from the weird tales. Uh, but those three people, and I just put myself in a minor position, but I went around the country for, gosh, eight months and went to so many conventions and so many what, the field distribution offices, and because I was part of the studio, I would go into what they call sort of like uh, local distributors meetings and things like that, and, you know, said, this film is going to be big, it's going to be big, it's going to be big. And they'd all say, Conan? You know, Arnold who? How do you say that last name? Of course, all that changed, you know, in May of 1982. But anyway, there were some people involved in the film who were indeed uh, uh, very much in love with the original character and tried to bring some of that love into the film. So, okay, having said that, uh, yes? So, would you ever consider, like, a, a, a shorter-type memoir thing about your Conan experiences? Once all the lawyers are dead, I'll be happy to write about my life in Conan. <laughs> I see some smiles from with people, but... <laughs> but, I, yeah, um, I, I actually am working on something. It's The title now is Now I Know. That's an ancient Latin phrase that Socrates apparently said just before he died. <laughs> so, yes? When did you know that you were working on something special? As soon as I read the script. John Mealy's strength was not, with all due respect, primarily as a director. He was considered to be one of the best writers in Hollywood, and he was. He's sweeping, romantic. If you read his screenplays, they're like novels. And uh, he's very good in character and dialogue and color, action, it's all there. And the romance, too, you know. Uh, oh, incidentally, there is a book on Conan the Barbarian coming out, uh, I think, from Titan Press. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I may be premature in announcing that, but I understand it's already uh, sort of been picked up in some places out there on social media. 
Um, but let's just say there may be a book coming out on Conan the Barbarian, the film, uh, which I uh, am looking forward to buying. Um, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> Someone had their hands up over here. Okay, in the back. What, what was the story? What was the story? I, I can't quite remember. I seem to remember him just being around the studio and they, they roped him into it somehow. Uh, no, 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 no. No, um, no Dino, Dino De Laurentiis was an old school showman. He was like, you know, the golden age of Hollywood. Dino was only as good as his directors, frankly, in my opinion, because he, he worked with Fellini, he worked with goodness, he worked with Sidney Lumet, he worked with John Emilius, uh, he worked with Rossellini. Uh, so, you know, a, a lot of the films that uh, Dino did are classic films. But Dino was an incredibly charming man, and he could charm anyone into anything. Also a very powerful and dangerous man. He had, I think Burt Reynolds in his uh, biography, his autobio, said that he had these glittering hypnotic green eyes that were as beautiful and as dangerous as a cobra. Mm. And I always thought, hmm, that's interesting, you know? But Dino was always very gracious and very, very great, um, very uh, generous to me. I mean, he opened his first class all the way. And, and he, he had a stable of people that liked to work for him. And, you know, uh, Max von Sydow had portrayed Ming the Merciless a few years earlier, you know, another Dino picture. And, uh, you know, he was part of the stable, you know? Odino, Odino would call him up and hey Max, you want to be in my movie? We got the biggest King Kong. No, thank you. I won't be in that one. <laughs> I don't. That's not true. Uh, but no, I mean the, uh, Max was more than happy to you know to work. And Max Boncito was a jobbing international actor, even though he started in a very rarefied and beautiful period of international art cinema. Um, he, you know, became a worldwide star. And you know, like most actors, you go with the you know, where the action is. But he liked working with Tino. Anyone else? Yeah. The back there. Yeah, you uh, mentioned Jack Thomas and everything. He, uh, he actually was a fan of that type of stuff. He had Mark Brown's books and everything else, including the Rose and Seabury Quinn, which was like a sword and sorcery Christmas. Absolutely, yeah. I remembered, yeah. When yeah, he, Kevin just holding his entire life. It was sold after he got it. Yeah, Jack, Jack had many aspects to him. Um, that was one of them. And uh, actually, uh, 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 I think it was Bill. must have been Bill Stout. And he got into a discussion of Jules Desay Grandin, which yeah. was the Seabury Queen character, right? Yeah. And, uh, but, but Jack Palance, uh, the famous story that Hollywood put out was that he had been burned during World War II, and that's why his face was like that. And Jack Palance when you were alone with him, said that that was some overactive imagination from a studio publicist, and he used to be a boxer. And that's him. He had had his nose broken a number of times and reset, and he had the high cheekbones naturally, and he just, that was what he looked like. And so this tale has floated around for years that he had, you know, plastic surgery after a disfiguring fire, but that's not true at all. He also was a method actor. <clears throat> which could be scary, you know. <laughs> I heard stories. Uh, Richard Fleischer, who did uh, Conan the Destroyer, and I would sit a lot. We talked about everything but 
component of the story because we're decade, you know, directed 20,000 leagues under the sea and the narrow margin and all these like really cool film noirs from the early 50s. And his dad was, you know, Max Fleischer, you know, Benny Boop and, you know, Coco the Clown and Popeye the Sailor. And we talked about all this stuff. And uh, he directed Jack Palance and Barabbas, which was also a Dino De Laurentiis movie. And uh, Jack Palance is the guy who's the gladiator that Anthony Quinn has to face, who's just this insane charioteer. And Dick, Dick Fleischer said, that, well, how can I, I'm going to have to think about how I tell this story. Um, okay. Uh, that, that just before they shot the first day in the, in the Coliseum scene, that, that, that Jack Palance was literally quivering, quivering. He was, I just want to kill somebody, Dick. I just want to kill somebody. And he goes, great, great. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> So he was, you know, interest, interesting man. Interesting I can remember man. that insane look he would have. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. He was he was. He was, he was. he was not a bad actor. He got a lot of, you know, like most of them, especially in the 70s, when things kind of started to dry up and uh, they all found it hard to get work. Or in the 60s, when they all went to Rome. You know, uh, Hollywood uh, by the Tiber, as they called it. Uh, you know, um, he took some roles that maybe he shouldn't have, but, but hey, hey, we've all done that. We've all done jobs we didn't want to do. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, in, from being involved in the films, why do you think um, they took the massive success of uh, Conan and turned it into the dumpster fire that resulted in Red Sonja and basically the end of all of it? Part, partly. Uh, earlier I said that Dino was only as good as his directors. I think that all of us here, since most of us primarily come from a literary background of some kind, film's only as good as its script. And scripts have to be done by a special kind of person or team without the constant rewriting of, now there's like 30 or 40 writers who go through a script who aren't even credited. Then you still see seven names up there. What happened on the second one was they had a new director. They had a lower budget. Melius um, was the guy who imposed all of the sternness and the austerity and the heaviness of Conan the Barbarian. That was John Melius. There was no force like that on Conan the Destroyer. And Conan the Destroyer as they were prepping it, and they had, they were on time schedules too, because you remember you've got like one of the hottest stars in the world right now, and he's bound to a contract, and they had, he's got other things he's gonna do, such as the Terminator, same year. Um, that, I don't wanna say corners were cut, but, 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 the, but the guiding presence wasn't there. The mind, the overmind, the ubermensch, right? And so it turned into a comic book film. And that's why Roy Thomas will be the first one to tell you that because he and Jerry Conway were the guys who originally did a script, which was much more elaborate and better, frankly, than what they came up with. Stanley Mann did the rewrite. Um, they just kind of turned it into a superficial thing. And Arnold was getting hotter and hotter, and he wanted out of his contract. And they were going to do the third one, and there was a scheduling conflict, so they brought in, what was it, Kevin Sorbo? to play Call, Call the Conqueror. That was supposed to be the third Conan film. And then Red Sonja came together real fast, and they had to shoot it in a very short period of time, and Brigitte Nielsen was on her way up. And she, there's a whole story behind Brigitte Nielsen's rise to stardom, which is really interesting. Um, but they thought they'd be able to spin it off. 
but it became like an assembly line type of thing. The first one is almost an auteur film. I won't go quite that far, but the first one really is from one mind, two minds, Oliver Stone and John Bielius. All the rest are committee movies, for better or worse, okay? And there's nothing to you know, be ashamed of to say that, because if you go to any, turn on your streaming service, how many good things do you see? 90%. Anyone remember Theodore Sturgeon? Oh, yeah. Remember Sturgeon's Law? Holds yeah. for everything. 90% of every, everything is crap. <laughs> there you go. It wasn't a willful thing. It was just something where they said, we've got to get it done, we got to get it done. Oh, we can't, we don't have time to blah, 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 blah. Who do we have that's fast and reliable? Who have we worked with before? Oh, yeah, okay, you're available, you're available. Okay, boom, bam, boom, cut, cut, out. Next one. Yeah. But now when you have like the long, Form streaming shows and stuff, they have more time. Um, interesting story, Miguel Sapotnik, uh, who I met, uh, he, he did in Game of Thrones all the big battle scenes, sequences, the, one, the episodes with the massive battles, that's one director. And he is a protege of Ivor Powell, who was the associate producer on Alien and on Blade Runner. And Ivor has been kind of mentoring Miguel for decades. And, and Miguel started in British TV doing commercials. And now he's one of the hottest directors in Hollywood. But he has a personal vision. Miguel is like an Edgar Wright. You know, if we know who Edgar Wright is, right? Shaun of the Dead. And uh, what was the latest movie he just did? Oh, uh, Last Night in Soho. You know, they, they have visions. You know, they're going to do it a certain way. And people find out, it's like Paul Verhoeven, I've worked with Paul on four movies now. That's my next book, by the way. I've been working on it for years. Um, I worked on Robocop, I worked on Starship Troopers, Starship Troopers 2. I'm, I'm in uh, Starship, Starship Troopers 1. Uh, I'm the guy who pushes the cow into the room and the court That's me. <laughs> my literal 10 seconds of starting. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been fortunate. I've worked with David Lynch, I've worked with David Cronenberg, I've worked with John Belius, I've worked with Ridley Scott, I've worked with John Landis. I've worked with a lot of people who have singular visions. And honestly, you know, every production is a nightmare. Anyone will tell you that in the industry. They're tough. Filmmaking is tough. Betty Davis said old age is not for sissies. The entertainment industry is not for sissies either. You better learn fast, it's a game, there are rules you have to play by, you have to have the height of a rhinoceros. On top of that, you must be incredibly persistent and focused to get what you want. If you have what you in your mind or your mind's eye sees as an artist, a writer, whatever, you have to do that and fight every single frame. Joe Dante once told, Joe's a friend of mine, once famously told me, I said, what was it like on Gremlins? Because I was working on another show at the time. He goes to the usual, says it's like being the victim of an auto crash. You remember everything in slow motion up to the moment of impact, and then mercifully from the crash onwards, you, you, you blank it out. <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty much, you know, that's, 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 it's, it's rough, you know? But on the other hand, there's some of the finest, most talented, greatest, I mean, a lot of people who are the, you would not believe how talented there are people who are in the, in the entertainment industry, both in the business and financial end, you know, in the, the money side, and also in the creative side. There's some really excellent people out there. So it's a 
Hollywood is a bizarre alternate reality that plays by its own rules and has no rules. Anything can happen and often does. The other famous, I'll leave you with a famous thing that Amelia said to me. He goes, you work and you grind, you work and you grind, and then if you're really, really unlucky, you get to make the picture. <laughs> that was my thing. So, anyway, thank you. Um, again, apologies for the lateness, but, uh, you know, God bless Robert E. Howard. Thank you, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Come on keep on kicking, man. All right? Bye. Thank you.